And we're going to start by looking at the main stories in the newspapers. Our panel, by the way, Dr. Kira Kelly, GP and presenter of a new programme on News Talk next weekend, no less. Kira, good morning to you. Morning, Jonathan. Uh, Terry Prone, the chair of the Communications Clinic. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. And Sheila Riley, formerly the editor of the Longford Leader, someone else who's got a new role. Now, you are the group head of Digital for Iconic News. Is that right? Indeed, yes. Very long winded. Much easier to say the editor of the Longford Leader. Sorry about that, Jonathan. It's just terribly inconvenient. No consideration. Congratulations (laughs) on that. And we have to look at the start of the newspapers this morning. And, you know, we always wake up in fear that we will end up on the front page of the newspapers. And lo and behold, Kira Kelly, there you are at the top of the Sunday Independent. And it would appear that you've gotten a bit lost this morning because you were looking for Montrose, was it? The headline, Dr. Kira Kelly, I want Marion Finucane's job. Uh, I, frankly, after being interviewed by Neve Warren, Jonathan, I think I got off lightly with that as the headline. Um, yes, I, I was asked during that interview, what would my dream job be? And I did say, you know, I didn't really know. And she said, what's, you know, in radio terms? And I said, you know, Marion Finucane's job is, would be great, wouldn't it? And of course, now I'm chasing Marion and trying to oust her from her seat. Uh, but uh, but uh, so be it. Uh, and and look as well, if you say, Terry, you know, you're the communications expert. Look at the smile on her in that photograph <laughs> as well. She's really going for Marion, isn't, isn't she? It's a really threatening smile. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 Is, if you can say a smile is well, I have to laugh. I was saying to, to Terry and Sheila before we came on air that I did get a phone call from the photographer from Sunday Independent who said to me after Karen, I'm just looking at your photo that we're putting with the interview. Your left eye. Is that a lazy eye? <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like, Jesus. I was like, um, not, not that I know of, but but thanks for that. So uh, you wouldn't want to be too sensitive about no, these things. No, not in this industry. No, certainly no. not. Anyway, let's look at the front pages of the newspapers. The, we'll start with the Sunday Independent. Noonan, my health is fine, says the banner headline. Finance Minister Michael Noonan has reassured his Fine Gael cabinet colleagues that his latest health scare will not affect his ability to get October's budget passed. Enda Kenny, the paper says, asked Mr Noonan for an update on his condition at the pre-cabinet meeting of Fine Gael ministers last Tuesday after the finance minister was forced to take a week off work. But uh, if you go down into the article you see comments from Kate O'Connell. Um, she uh, is of course a, an up and coming TD. She um, goes on to kind of support Michael Noonan but then she calls for fresh blood in the party's senior ranks because she believes that they're at nothing if the same gang who rang the last election campaign remains in place. I'm sure she'd very much like to be part of that uh, fresh blood if uh, it was going. A central Bank digs in against changes to mortgage rules. That's the second headline there by Wayne O'Connor. The Central Bank last night sent out a defiant pre-budget message to the government dampening expectations of a loosening of tough mortgage rules. On to the Sunday Times. Uh, they lead with uh, Halligan will pressure Ross on bus dispute. Transport Minister Shane Ross is set to come under pressure from his independent alliance colleagues this week after Junior Minister John Halligan backed Dublin, a uh, bus errand workers rather, against planned pay cuts. Halligan wants private operators' licences withdrawn and has called for bus services nationwide to be nationalised. Uh, Shane Ross, of course, is in a dispute with Bus Aaron's chairman and chief executive about how much they told him about their restructuring plans. He is due to discuss the, meet- the issue at a meeting with fellow Independent Alliance TDs on Tuesday. So it would appear from that uh, that the unions are now putting pressure on the Independent Alliance in government over the Bus Aaron dispute and presumably the Dublin bus dispute. We'll speak with the NBRU after 11 o'clock, by the way, and we'll put that point to them. And the suggestion that's also in the Sunday Independent that there could be wildcat strikes not at Dublin bus just this week but also bus Aaron and Irish Rail. Um, EU's Cupola Fuckle runneth over with 58 million bill for translation. The European Union will spend 58 million euro over the next five years phasing in full official language status for 
Irish, you'd wonder, is that money that is well spent? Not wishing to offend any Gaelgores, as has been done elsewhere this week. But anyway... Sunday Business Post, small USC tax cuts as Noonan prepares pro-business budget. USC to drop 0.5% for lower paid workers. Further crackdown on corporate tax avoidance. Uh, Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell write, small tax cuts for low and middle income earners, a further move against corporate tax avoidance and Brexit-proof tax incentives for businesses on the cards in next month's budget. As preparations for budget 2017 begin in earnest, the government is set to deliver a modest package of tax measures that will see low and middle income workers benefit from only five euro a week or less as two thirds of the available one billion will go towards public spending measures little room for tax relief for workers or businesses so don't get your hopes up if you thought you were going to get a windfall from the budget uh, they've another story there Michael Brennan their political editor writes hospitals in crisis a confidential HSE report has revealed the health service is still beset by problems despite a 500 million euro increase in its budget the number of people waiting on trolleys for more than 24 hours in A&E's starting to rise again uh, the black hole that is health strikes another time Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday 46,000 a month the astonishing amount we pay to rent an apartment for our ambassador in Tokyo taxpayers here are paying out an astonishing 46 grand a month to house our ambassador to Japan in a sumptuous home sumptuous no less in one of Tokyo's most exclusive areas the colossal rental fee which adds up to more than 550,000 a year is for a spacious apartment that comes with access to an exclusive spa, swimming pool, gym facilities a stunning roof garden and even wine and port cellar. Now you see the key word there is access to it isn't all there for the ambassador he'll have to share it with other people which is a terrible burden. She in this instance. She in this instance right she in this instance I beg your pardon Terry Ms Uh, Barrington. Ms Barrington but it it is yes it is an awful lot of money but they kind of make it out worse than it is to be fair and uh, my hell is a hutch is the front page story on the Sunday world Um, my father and cousins are dead the good life for Uncle Jerry is over I want this bloodshed to end Eddie Hutch Jr. has called for an end to the bloodshed uh, in an interview with the Sunday world so Lots in the newspapers. At, we're going to begin with the strikes, Sheila, if we can. Dublin bus, back on the streets this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, passed a few of them on the way in. Uh, so the service is running. The question is, of course, what happens next? We know there are further strike days planned. There's no talks planned. And now the prospect of Wildcat. Yeah, I mean, there are talks about the Wildcat strike this week um, with, um, with the other unions joining in, but or with the other uh, companies joining in. But I just don't know if that's really going to happen, if that's realistic. I, I know there's uh, talk, but I think it's in the... Independent today. There's a report on that. Um, like it's a difficult position uh, for the bus drivers at this point because you're getting to the stage where uh, the public sympathy is going to wear out for them, you know. And um, but having said that, they have pinned their col- their flagged the mass and they're going to have to go with this you know uh, so as time goes on I feel that sympathy will will drain out for them but at the same time I think they're right to kind of stick by their guns they've gone this far uh, the only one I've seen that come up with a solution of any sort other than uh, Shane Ross going in is Stephen Kinsella has a good piece in um, the Business Post today where he kind of suggests that Realistically, what should be done is that a power that there should be some sort of a sharing mechanism uh, where the surplus that uh, Dublin Bus now has that it has since 2013, where that surplus is shared out among the workers if it goes over four percent or something like yeah. that. Uh, that seems to me to be one solution. It's certainly a solution better than anything I've heard so far. Yes, but at least it's someone talking about a solution, Terry. And you'd have to mm. wonder in this scenario. 
Dublin bus management is part of their strategy saying let's get the public to turn on the drivers which gives us a stronger bargaining position when we do actually sit down to talk. I would figure that they would need to be stupid not to have that as part of their strategy that the key themes that have come from the bus drivers have been that they haven't had an increase in salary in since 2008. And the thing is that there's a lot of people, particularly bus commuters, who also haven't had an increase in salary in that time. And when that allied to the inconvenience makes the connection in people's minds, then the half-hearted support that there is currently for the drivers will undoubtedly erode. Is it a risky practice, though, to to let this play out the way it's playing out? Because they're losing money. They're losing a lot of money, millions, every time this happens. Uh, confidence is being eroded. And we see what's happening with Bus Aaron is that, you know, they're, they're concerned now that the private operators are creeping in. It's a delicate balancing act for a public company like Dublin Bus. It's a hugely delicate balancing act. And one of the advantages that this particular negotiation has is that repeated calls for Shane Ross to get involved had been in, uh, ignored by Shane Ross. Mm. And this is... Now, sorry, I'm not uh, being uh, ironic in this. I'm actually being very serious. Shane Ross should not get involved. Uh, governments have made an effort over the past 20 years to distance themselves from things like this so that they cannot be doing political acts in an industrial relations situation. Mm. Shane Ross should not be involved. But on both sides, there should be a reaching for a solution, ideally a slightly outside the envelope uh, reaching for a solution that allows everybody to save a bit of face and get the buses back on the road. Which is what's going to happen anyway. It's a question of Similar getting relation. to that point. But we have another particular uh, element creeping in here now, which is the unions seemingly enlisting Kira the likes of the Independent Alliance and John Halligan. Now, we know that the, the bus air dispute is somewhat different, but it is something that uh, ha- has prompted a government minister now to, to kind of come out and make comments to put pressure on Shane Ross. So is, is that how this is going to play out, that we're going to see some members of the Independent Alliance putting pressure on a government minister from their own government? I think we've talked a lot about new politics, and I think John Halligan is certainly a version of new politics in that he seems to get involved with things and, and come at things in a manner that is quite unlike more seasoned possibly politicians um, I would tend to agree that I think the support for the, the bus drivers will erode because I think there's so many people who are only barely keeping their heads above water trying to get around Dublin trying to get to their jobs they're not paid very well themselves and I think if you cannot and I know lots of people because I would live out in, in Wicklow and a lot of people are reliant on public transport to get to work and many people couldn't actually get to work at all because the only way they had to get to work was the bus and so they're trying to work from home and it's creating all kinds of difficulties for people Um I think something will obviously and clearly have to be done and I, I think there may well be some kind of face-saving uh, malarkey that, that happens. It does strike me as, as a large pay rise they're looking for, 15 to 21% strikes me in the current climate where, where inflation is not that high and and I fully respect that they haven't had, had a, a pay rise in eight years but... Um, neither have probably anybody else in this room and and I think that's the difficulty for all of us is that everyone's just trying to keep going and and when things like public services fail it's very difficult for for ordinary people who maybe don't even have the potential to strike because lots of people working don't have that option. And is is it a problem do you think that we have a situation now whereby this union still has huge sway in in how the company operates they can manage to shut down the entire company because something hasn't gone their way and it does it disconnect with a lot of other workers who don't necessarily have that kind of trade union background, that trade union support that if they wanted 15%, they can go and announce their boss and they'll get a flea 
in their ear that the most they'll get. There definitely is a disconnect but there is something I thought Sarah Carey had a very good piece in The Independent today about um, you know that that this this is the reality of if you want to stand up and protest if you want to you know stand up for your rights or you know when we were saying it's time Ireland stood up and took a stand well this is what it means you know it means that people are going to be inconvenienced it means that services will be uh, will be halted that strikes will be taken you know you know I thought it was it, 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 she's made a couple of very good points in that piece today about this is the reality of what we're talking about when we talk about standing up for what's going on and in in many ways we're in a post-union era in a lot of places in Ireland you know that unions just don't exist in many companies or they aren't very strong uh, so in that regard there is a disconnect but it, I think there is a greater sympathy among workers out there for Dublin bus drivers albeit uh, that they are looking for considerable um, pay hikes uh, but there is sympathy there because mm. people kind of relate to where they're coming from they did take cuts back in 2008 um, they, in relation cuts, to they, they were restored the, last June it's not as if they're still there yeah but they took the cut they did take the pain when they had to take the pain which is seven or eight years ago and that was on the understanding that when things turned good Maria that their situation would improve and the company has been in surplus since 2013 mm. so I, I think there, ha- there has been it's not an unrealistic ex- unrealistic expectation on their behalf to get something what, whatever sympathy there might be there for the bus drivers Terry do you think there's much sympathy for Shane Ross who has been on the sidelines on this particular issue uh, lobbing hand grenades for uh, well over a decade now he finds himself on the other side well, you, you would just love having Shane Ross on the radio he was great fun to interview he got very quiet of late <laughs> the thing is that journalists um, no offence to present company um, always believe that they can do better than politicians. <laughs> the currency of current affairs radio at the moment is journalists expressing contempt for politicians. Oh, oh Terry, how, oh, di- yes. how very dare Oh, you. yes. And then some of them go into politics. And, you know, the success rate of journalists going into politics is pretty damn patchy. <laughs> To say the least, to say the least. Yeah, I think people should stop calling for Shane Ross to, go, to intervene in this whole thing. To be quite honest, I think he needs to stay very, very far away from it. I frankly don't think he has the skills one way or the other to deal with him. The language he has used in public so far certainly doesn't tell me that this is a man you, that can you, go in and act diplomatically. You nearly feel sorry for him at this stage between the Olympics and the bus strikes. You know, poor Shane, he's been able to be on the sort of sidelines forever in, in the opposition saying very populist things. And now he's actually well, stuck in the thick of things with things to do. And it's very difficult. It's easier to be the hurler in the ditch than the fella at full forward. You mentioned new politics, Kira. Um, what's quite grim looking at the business post today is the opinion poll that has effectively shown us at stalemate. Nothing has changed no. that dramatically since the general election. If we were to have one tomorrow, we might have Fianna Gael propping up Fianna Fáil as opposed to Fianna yep. Fáil propping up Fianna Gael. And that's very depressing, that, that politics <coughs> hasn't moved on at all. We haven't gotten more disillusioned with the government we've had or the others haven't convinced us that they're the ones to lead us out of whatever mess we're in. No, we, we appear to be in sort of a, a holding pattern at the moment politically and, and obviously Fianna Fáil is slightly ahead of Fine Gael, but they're, they're much of a muchness and they're still the only viable working coalition. And you would have to ask if we continue to vote this way and that governments continue to be slightly unstable minority kind of governments, whether or not eventually the two of them will just man up and actually get together and become fine fail or something. Well, you know they, they, I mean? they might, they'll probably implode before that'll happen, given the noise that they made when it was suggested last time. Well, I, I think they, you know, particularly from a Fianna Fáil point of view, they had to make lots of noise, didn't they? Or else they became completely irrelevant. Um, I do think that 
the way we're, we're seeing politics move in the country is is they are centrist, whether they like it or not, conservative parties. And it makes sense that they would be actually in coalition, apart from, from historical reasons. Um, the other sort of oppositions are <clears throat> further to the left, most of them. I know there's a, f- a few kind of on the right, but but it's mostly to the left. And um, I, I think it would be no harm for them to be in coalition, to be frank, mm. because that way, at least when people do vote, they can vote for, 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 for policy. And, and what we've always had up until now was either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael in government, which meant we never got any change. The Tweedledum and Tweedledee exactly. argument. But Terry, when you look at what's happening elsewhere, you look at what's happening in the States, and we'll talk more about this in a while, what happened in, with the Labour Party in Britain yesterday? Jeremy Corbyn, roundly despised by the vast majority of his MPs, gets back in with 60, what, 65% of the ordinary grassroots membership, meaning that Labour is going to be rather ineffective in opposition, giving Theresa May a clear run towards the next general election. Politics is broken everywhere, not just here. Well, what what the Jeremy Corbyn thing proves is that you can have a success, you can have an achievement that makes everything disastrously worse. And that's what he has done. And what Jeremy Corbyn ultimately wants is hopefully an impossibility. He wants a, a democracy where you don't elect people to use their judgment, their individual judgment in representing the often conflicting interests of all of the people who voted for them and change it into government by opinion poll where everybody can have an opinion on everything. He of all people should know better because if we had judgment by opinion poll we would for example still in Britain have the death penalty for anybody who kills anybody else. The majority of the people of Britain have always wanted that but Because they have a parliamentary democracy, the people they elect choose a more elevated response to things like that. Corbyn, I regard as the most dangerous thing to ever happen uh, in Britain to the the Labour Party. Um, On the other hand, what this opinion poll in Ireland shows is the Labour Party isn't doing that badly and that its opponents are not doing that well. But I actually wish to offer you therapy because um, you found this opinion poll grim. I find it puzzling that you find what's grim about it. It's kind of the mixture as before. People have more or less said, OK, there's a government. Let them do what they're going to do. Well, Terry, We're not, not getting it's, our it's knickers not knotted. It's not a very good government. They've managed to do very That's little. your personal opinion. That's nothing to do with the opinion poll. Fair enough, Sheila. Um, where where to begin with all that? <laughs> um, I don't think it's a very good government. I think they are. Um, that's grand. Uh, Michael McDowell refers to it today in, in the Business Post. But that's they not are, what the opinion poll finds. No, I know it's not what the opinion poll finds, uh, Terry. But you know that's not the question they were asked. In fairness, you know, I don't think they were asked is it a good government, but they're not a good government because they're not they can't get anything done because they are paralysed by nearly their makeup what by would, their makeup should they have done that they haven't done well you know they, they are paralysed in terms no no of that's their, another assertion their, what should they have actually done well, that they haven't done they have done it's what they should have done because they're only in there a couple of months but right. the reality Thank is you. they're not going to be able to do a whole lot we can see yeah, it yeah but that's your predictive thing look at John Halligan the look issue is whether Fianna Fáil has suffered from this and they actually it looks like they are suffering Suffering slightly. Mm. Yes, because Fianna Fáil are the stability underneath this government at the moment. And Micheál Martin made a hell of a decision 
to effectively reinstitute a TALA strategy. Now, we know what happened, Alan Dukes, as a result mm. of the TALA strategy. So that took great courage. What I would be bothered about if I were going into the grim department, Jonathan, is that um, the more volatile in Fianna Fáil would look at this and decide, OK, this is not working, we need to do something else which would increase the, the paralysis, I the inability to... I don't think that's going to happen. I think Michal Martin has managed to steady the ship there considerably and that he has um, sort of allayed a lot of the fears there in the background. And, and they are looking across at what and, is and, happening and at the independ- in the Independence Alliance uh, with Fine Gael and they see that fractured mess kind well, of coming apart in front of their eyes. They do not want to be the ones let, to pull that apart at this point. No, you're right. Bre- uh, Michael uh, Brennan in the Sunday Business Post today says that the key message of this opinion poll is that it means the ability of Fianna Fáil to call a snap election well, has been and reduced. Uh, uh, Michal Martin is doing the equivalent of, of training, warming up alongside of the pitch before he actually runs on because that's what's actually pre- they're preparing the way. Mm. I can't wait for Fianna Fáil to claim credit for the budget. That's the, that's what really is going to make it for me. Anyway, this is the Sunday show. Lots more to come. We'll be uh, looking at the march yesterday in Dublin and reviewing the rest of the Sunday papers with Sheila Riley, Terry Brown and Dr Kira Kelly. Stay with us. Now, a lot of coverage for this March for Choice, which took place in Dublin yesterday. Um, people who were calling for the abolition of the Eighth Amendment, or a, I suppose a vote to abolish the Eighth Amendment, because that would be how it would happen if it was to happen that way. Here are some of the voices from that march, and a little bit of a warning uh, on a Sunday morning. Some language might not be suitable if there are smaller ears near the radio. My name is Sarah, I'm from Tipperary. Um, I'm here today because I think it's... 2016 and it's an absolute disgrace the 12 women every day are travelling overseas to have an abortion. So women's right to bodily autonomy is it's a fundamental human right and that's why I'm here today. Hi, I'm Sally. I'm from Dublin and I'm repealing the 8th because I don't want all y'all's politics in my lady bits. <laughs> my name is Nisha, I'm from Dundalk and I'm here because it just makes me really feel really shit to be Irish that we don't allow abortion in this country in life-threatening circumstances. Like, yeah, I'm just really, really angry. My name is Jess Kavanagh. Um, I uh, live in Dublin 8. I'm originally from Beaumont. Uh, I'm out here to show support uh, for Appeal the 8th um, and that women's bodies, it's the, it's our choice to decide um, and the state should be supporting people if they feel that it's their choice to have an abortion. We should be supported for that. So hi, my name is Linda and I'm from Portland, Oregon, but I'm studying medicine at Trinity College and I'm marching with medical students for choice. I was actually very surprised when I came to Ireland and I found out that abortion was illegal here and I think that's a very important right that women should have. My name is Fiona O'Loughlin and I'm with the Socialist Party. I'm 56 years of age. I campaigned in 1983. My daughter's here with me now campaigning. I'm long gone past needing abortion rights, but I'm determined that young women in Ireland will not put up with what we had to put up, but it's time that we just change things. I'm Alva Smith from the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment, which represents just 70 groups and organisations all around the country. We're here today because we represent something in the region of one and a half million people in the coalition in this country, and because each and every Every single one of us favours repeal of the Eighth Amendment and we are absolutely part of that and this is a nationwide movement now. Ruth Carpenter, TD, Anti-Austerity Alliance uh, and I'm here to support obviously the burgeoning movement now for repeal of the Eighth Amendment and for abortion rights in Ireland. Minister Catherine Zappone, 
and I am delighted to be gathering with other citizens to call for a repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Uh, it's been an amendment that I think has caused harm to so many women over the past 33 years, and we need to bring in a new way and a new, new set of laws to ensure that that will never happen again. Minister for Children Catherine Zappone, the last voice we heard on the streets of Dublin yesterday. Sheila Riley, in particularly inclement weather amid a bus strike, mm-hmm. um, they're saying somewhere between ten and 20,000. You could probably split the difference to get an accurate figure. Uh, were you surprised that it wasn't more? Because the suggestion was that it was going to be a bigger rally than that. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's hard to know because it, you, we don't really know how many people uh, turned out at this uh, at that march uh, because it is virtually impossible to kind of guess those things. But at the same time, I think it was a very strong representation. And I think um, that it's certainly there is a momentum with the repeal the eighth movement now. And you definitely got that sense um, yesterday and in the coverage today that they, they feel the momentum is with them, you know, um, particularly and a number of people have referred to the kind of the generational issue, you know, um, the fact that many of the people who are out there marching would never have had a chance to vote on this issue at all. And also as well, I feel there probably is now a more nation, you know, it's it's gone beyond Dublin, if you like. There's definitely it's it's pushing the movement is pushing down the country. If you like, there's there's the momentum is gathering down there as well, um, and that there is a sense that this is this is taking off, if you like, you know. Um, what can I say beyond that? I just think the momentum was with them, and you definitely got that sense from yesterday. Kira uh, Kelly, you. you are on record saying that the Eighth Amendment should be repealed. I think it should, yes. Um, Does yesterday give you heart that that is going to happen or is it just another step as as part of the campaign you support? I think it's very much in line with what Sheila was saying. I think there is a building of momentum behind the campaign. Um, I I believe that the, the Eighth Amendment should be repealed and what's more, I don't even think it should be replaced because I think Having, um, you know, two lines in the Constitution that affect how we we practice healthcare and medicine in this country is a problem. I think we need robust legislation. I think we need good medical ethics about this. And I think I would like to allay the fears of of the middle ground, which I think are very important because we often hear the extremes in in terms of these debates. Um, There will never be sort of, uh, you know, abortion on demand of a 37 week old healthy fetus, all all those kind of things that you hear that that will never happen because that would be totally contrary to medical ethics. Um, but what I do think is is that women have a right to uh, you know free, safe and legal health care covering all their reproductive choices and, and I think that we don't have this here and there is whether 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 the sort of the other side of, of, of this debate says it or not there is a chilling effect on medics and on their ability to step in and help in certain but, circumstances but the, for women When you talk about there is a reluctance of medics to step in the country simply isn't set up. Our medical system isn't set up for anything on the far side of the Eighth Amendment being repealed. We, Our maternity hospitals alone certainly do not have any capability if it was to be repealed in the morning. Uh, uh, well, it certainly won't be repealed in the morning, but you're right. Our, our maternity hospitals, to be honest, can barely cope with what they have going on for themselves at the moment. Um, but nonetheless, I think we need to take steps and we need to put this in place. This probably won't happen till at the earliest, the end of next year. And I think what we what we are seeing behind the movement to repeal the Eighth Amendment is a broad support for certainly the notion of um, terminations available to women in this country under the grounds of things like rape, things like incest, things like fatal fetal abnormalities. Three quarters of the population support but those you're, ideas. you're saying, in your opinion, that we should get rid of any reference to this I do think in, so. in the Constitution. But we have to know, before the people vote on something, yes. they have to know what's going to be on the other side. I of. would agree with you. I think what we need to do, therefore, is for some sample legislation to be put 
in place to show what might replace, not necessarily within the constitution, but within the fabric of our our, mm. our legislature, um, replace what's in the Eighth Amendment. Because to be honest, having a reference to this kind of thing in in, in a, a document as simplistic, if you like, as the constitution, is a problem. It's it, it, it's very restrictive and it causes a difficulty in delivering healthcare. And let's let's put, bring this back to that healthcare to patients. Uh, Terry, um, there was what 15,000 people there yesterday. If you speak to the other side, the pro-life side, they would have had rallies of similar size in Dublin in recent times as well, which gives us points to pause and realise that there are two sides to the debate that are quite polarised and there's that large bit in the middle that Kira was making reference to there. And those are the people who are going to have to be won over by either side in that debate if the Eighth Amendment is to be repealed. Do you think that that middle ground has picked a side yet or has, is it something they haven't given much consideration to? First of all, I don't believe that they have to be won over. The Eighth Amendment is going to be repealed. There can be no doubt about that. Second thing is we have to remember that it only went into the Constitution in the 80s. There is an assumption, I believe, out there that this was always the case going back to the 30s. It wasn't. I can remember having an argument with my mo- it wasn't an argument, but a discussion with my mother at the time that this was going into the Constitution and saying, what do you think about it? And she's saying this should not be going into the Constitution. And I was quite surprised because she would have been in her 60s, 70s at the time. And I said, why should it not go into the Constitution? And she said, because it's it's a generation trying to rule beyond the grave. It's a generation trying to control the legislative actions of its successors. That should simply not happen. And I have never forgotten that. I've thought, yes, that's absolutely right. Which leads to something else. First of all, the assumption that there should be a replacement within the Constitution is mistaken. There should be nothing. It shouldn't be in the Constitution at all. But secondly, you will then get into the issue of the legislation that must go around this. And that is where the polarised opposites of which you talk um, will find if they haven't already found, there is no potential compromise on this. There simply is no point of compromise because on one side you have a group of people who are saying the unborn child is life and it has the rights. Similarly, you have on the other side uh, a large cohort saying, no, no, this is a woman's issue. This is the human rights of the woman. There is simply no point of compromise mm. between so those some, so two So one lives. side is going to lose out in this debate. One ultimately. side may lose out to a degree in the legislative process that follows the removal of the Eighth Amendment. But if the removal of the Eighth Amendment doesn't happen for 18 months, two years, the legislation coming in after it, we have another delay. Yeah, so it's not going to happen urgently. Isn't that the point as well, though? Because what you have is phenomenal pressure coming upon TDs right across the country in relation to that legislation and the implementation of that legislation. Like, I firmly believe the amendment should be uh, repealed and that legislation, as Kira as said, robust legislation should be introduced in its place. But I, the political reality of that might be a bit different, you know, in, in, well, in how, the truth. How much you know, in that a lot of politicians will come under a lot of pressure, yeah. you know, particularly once you go uh, But politicians being politicians, they have given themselves an opportunity through the Citizens' Assembly, or at least the Taoiseach has, to say, well, we've debated this ad nauseum and the, the, the Assembly decided X, Y and Z 
and uh, I, who am I as a TD from God knows where to argue with the Citizens Assembly Can I say one thing about the Citizens Assembly it's quite interesting how it's structured I don't know if you've looked at they're obviously seeking these hundred people this cohort mm. or forum of people to discuss it but what they have to do these people there's no stipend or payment or anything so you have to be first of all quite motivated to do this because it's ten full weekends a year that's what over the period of time there's not a lot of young women with families are going to be able to, for example, take 10 full weekends and go. You have to wonder whether or not the group who are going to be in the Citizens' Assembly will be able to be a very representative group because, you know, people of a certain age, maybe who are working full time, will find it very difficult to give up 10 weekends. People with small children would find it very hard to give up, um, you know, 10 weekends. I would be slightly concerned about the selection process in terms of self-selection as to who will actually go. I think the people who want to be involved may be people who are motivated from either side in a very... um you know, activated kind of a way. Well, it's being chosen by a polling company who are mm. going to try and from get a representative sample from the so I mean, In theory, it I, should be a broad church. I, well, I, I would look at the people in this room and say, would any of you give up 10 weekends or would you have the potential to give up 10 full weekends all day Saturday and all day Sunday this year to do this? It's quite interesting how this is going to be set mm. up and what that's actually going to mean for the group that's chosen. And Terry, do you think that there are backbenchers down the country, particularly those allied to both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael who are terrified about this because this, this is going to hit them hard and the people who are going to hit them know how to hit them hardest? I think that there is less overwhelming dread than there used mm. to be. I think that TDs and candidates in very um, convinced constituencies, constituencies where there would be a strong majority for one side or the other, used to feel enormous pressure and used to feel this was a career threatening issue. I'm not sure it is I think they, I think you're right there. I think they see them. Uh, they see that cohort as a diminishing number, and and they know, you know, they know they could, they know they're vocal, um, and they know, as you said, Jonathan, they can cause, you know, they can be loud and cause them a bit of pain. But they see them as a diminishing number, and, and that's crucial to Kira, where they will take a stand in the end. I've just seen it because I follow you on Twitter. You've been getting a lot of grief over this in recent times. I mean, do, do, as somebody who at least has pinned their colours to the mast on this. Uh, I'm a member of Doctors for Choice. Is it fair to get the the flack that you're getting? I don't care about the flack at all. Um, I do get, you know, things thrown at me like, you know, murderer or baby killer or how could a doctor possibly support this, you know, removal of the the Eighth Amendment and things. And and I think very clearly I support it because when I have, which I do have, and and not everyone who who I suppose has an opinion on this or, or has taken a stand on this would ever be in the position I would be in. I have people sitting in a chair in front of me in crisis on a regular basis and my view is this, is it is not my place to tell another human being, another woman, how she should proceed with a crisis pregnancy. And that is the essence of being pro-choice. It's not about being pro-abortion. And, and, and I would take issue with anybody from the opposing side that says things like pressure to abort. I wouldn't dream and I don't know of any doctor anywhere that would put pressure on a woman to abort. It is absolutely anathema to us as doctors. But what I wouldn't do is put pressure on a woman to make a decision about her life that 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 is is not my, you know, decision to make. You, this is a very difficult area. And one of the things I do have a slight concern, I, I think Sheila and Terry are saying, oh, it's not so, you know, the politicians have maybe moved a bit. I hope they have. But do bear in mind, we have an age profile and a gender profile of, of politicians, many of whom are in their, their 50s, 60s, some of them toward their 70s and are male, who have come from, from 
an Ireland where it was just accepted that abortion was wrong and abortion was murder. And these guys have never really given the issue much thought. They've mm. never thought what it is to be a young woman in crisis. They've never experienced or entered their head what it is to be a young woman who's been sexually assaulted. They don't know what it is to, to get a diagnosis of fatal fetal abnormality. They don't know and they've never walked in those shoes. And I think sometimes they find it very hard to make that mental stretch to empathise with women in crisis. But we do know 170,000 women have travelled. We do know that they're travelling today, tomorrow and every day this well, week. Th- there was a, po- a piece of information put out yesterday by the pro-life campaign saying that 100,000 lives had been saved by the Eighth Amendment. Well, we have, I mean, in fairness... I don't know, I, I don't know how they well, came up exactly, with that figure, I, you know, that, you know, And I don't know how out. anyone could know that. And, and, and that seems to me to be a statistic that is, is you know... You know, truthiness is an, is an issue nowadays in, in, in debate and God only knows where that statistic comes from. But the reality of this is we know women are travelling every day and I, I think you'll have, have remembered quite recently the, the trending of the, the two women travel on, on Twitter trended globally and one of the chief tweets that those women put out that that made me kind of, my heart sink, sank. They were sitting and they sent a tweet of, of a waiting room of a clinic in the UK mm. and they said joined by more Irish in the waiting room and I just thought, how many women are we going to put on boats and planes till we deal with our own issues in this country? And it is something that's going to play out on social media which we know is a chamber to a certain degree but it will mimic conversations that will happen, happen elsewhere. I just want to finish up with the story about uh, counting people at rallies. Uh, you know, th- 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 This is a very angry thing that people say there was 20,000 there was 40,000 and the poor out reporters who have to decide how many people are at this. Nobody ever sympathises. And it's far more accurate nowadays because there's an app. Like, there's an app for most things. But the way it used to work anyway when I was a reporter years ago is you'd stand around and go, there's an awful lot of them, isn't there? There is, yeah. Was there more than last year? There was, yeah. Ask a guard. How many's here? There are about 10,000. So, so, 10,000. And you ask another guard, how many are here? There are about 15,000. And you just split the difference. And you can say, <laughs> guard these, say 12,500 people turned up at the rally. It's a little more sophisticated now. Jonathan Healy on the Sunday show with you till 12. We'll hear more from the panel in just a minute. But Richie McCormick from Off the Ball is with us to talk about what's coming up on the programme later and what's on the sport pages. Uh, Paul Kimmage and David Walsh, mm. gentlemen who've written extensively about doping in the past, um, what are they saying in their Sunday articles about TUEs? The the articles kind of differ because uh, David Walsh is delving further into the Bradley Wiggins story and the news that he has taken uh, a couple of TUEs, which is a therapeutic use exemption, which for those who don't know, is basically taking a banned substance within the realms of acceptability. So if you're suffering from an ailment that requires you to take this banned substance, uh, as Wiggins put it today in his Andrew Murray interview on BBC, it's to bring him onto a level playing field. But what, what, what did he take uh, that we know? Um, he took, in, in one instance, uh, a couple of times, there was um, basically an, an asthma drug because he says he suffers from respiratory problems and a, a corticortisoid, which is basically an anti-inflammatory, is another one which he took uh, prior to the 2012 Tour de France win, uh, which he came at 32 years of age and came as a surprise to a lot of people. So as David Walsh says in his piece today, uh, his 2012 win should now come with an asterisk beside it. There's a lot more to be delved into the Wiggins case in particular and possibly into others within Team Sky as well but sadly David Brailsford who's the head of Team Sky as David Walsh points out in his article isn't necessarily talking about it at the moment and that basically the skyline is that they're working within the rules and which, do, do we know what, what medical reason he had to take something before his Tour de France because that's the key question here yeah we're trying to find basically and ascertain why that is and it's kind of dance around he basically says that he has worked within the rules and you know, if they've applied for a TUE to the uh, cycling union and they basically say that's fine and then that's okayed by WADA, then there's no question to answer, essentially. Yeah. But it's just the timing of it, in Wiggins's cases specifically, uh, seem a bit sus.
Kira Kelly, you're the medical expert in the room at the moment. Uh, it, it, it's a hard thing to do if you are a high-performing athlete. For example, if I was drugs tested right now by WADA, I'd be out the door because I'm taking cortisone to treat asthma. So, you know, there are genuine reasons why athletes would be given something that would show up in a drugstore. There are, and it's true that asthma medications and and even therapeutic and reasonable medications do have some performance enhancing side effects of them because obviously they improve your breathing. That's what they're there for. Um, What I thought was quite interesting about Bradley Wiggins, though, is is that he got a long acting injection of a corticosteroid. So he was given a, a, a big dose intramuscularly of a steroid just before he went in the race. Let me put that in context for you. I see lots of asthmatics. I actually have a kind of a special interest in asthma and I, you know, would have trained in asthma clinics and stuff in hospitals and all before I went into general practice. I have never given anyone that medication in that form because it's it's a bit like a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's a huge dose of steroids and it's not a standard asthmatic medication. And what I would say, let's not talk about him because we're not going to libel anybody, but what I would say in general terms, if you were to give somebody that, yes, an asthmatic person might be on the back foot in terms of their sporting abilities because of their condition. Mm. Although in his autobiography, he does say that he never had much more than a cough or a cold and he was actually very healthy. He doesn't mention this terrible asthma that he had that required this kind of treatment. So, but having said that, you, you know, he might be on the back foot if he was asthmatic, but certainly this type of treatment would then overshoot you on your level of playing field, I would suggest, okay. and give you quite the advantage. Rather than bring him to the absolutely. level which no, was absolutely. the Absolutely. Because this is a big dose of steroids. I am. It's a long-acting drug. Before we go back to what's in the papers, mm. Terry, in, in the context of this, uh, athletes, it's a very unfortunate thing. <laughs> I look at the horror on your face. It's okay. It's all right. Um, it's, if, if you, an athlete, it's very hard to kind of defend something like this when it comes into the public domain because, you know, you are there as a performer and somebody who has done very well and well, all of a sudden something is leaked from a website where you had an exemption for something and now you're trying to t- prove to everybody you're not a dope. Yeah, but the complication here in purely PR terms is that this man and others came out well in advance of all of this, saying that they had never had TUEs. So you can't have it both ways. Mm. You can't have, even if it was only what I presume you take, which is a Simbicort puffer, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, uh, whether it's that or whether it's a major league injection, you do not announce to the world that you've never had one of these. If you have had one of these, the simplest thing, I mean, in people always assume that PR is about spin. PR is about the truth. If you ever have to have anything that would subsequently be questioned, you are much better to put it out straight in the first place long before there's a controversy. Okay, we'll come back to you on Chelsea's 3-0 thrashing at the hands of Arsenal in a few <laughs> minutes. Uh, Richie, what else is in the papers? Uh, yeah, there's plenty of reaction to that uh, that thrashing that uh, was dealt out to Chelsea yesterday as well. Ditto to Manchester United who seem to have put all their problems behind them along with Wayne Rooney on the bench. Yes, and, uh, very sad Leicester. photograph of Rooney with the balls yesterday. Yeah, Did you see that? I feel terrible for him really on his 300 grand a week. I mean, <laughs> the heart would break at having to sit in his arse for 90 minutes while watching his teammates perform better Football, without him. Football Balls, by the way, I realised that could have been open to misinterpretation. <laughs> Only by the dirty of mind, Jonathan, which none of us are Thank of God. that disposition in the studio. Um, so, yeah, we'll be looking back on yesterday's football as well, as well as today's, because we've got one live game on today's show as well, which is West Ham against Southampton and Gary Breen. And Dave McIntyre are going to be at the London Stadium, nay, the Olympic Stadium, as it was a couple of years ago, uh, where uh, Bradley Wiggins was one of those who was so... Uh, Celebrated Indeed. at the time. Okay, yeah. off the ball, on the way at 12 o'clock. Uh, Richie, thank you very much for that. Sheila Riley, Terry Prone and Kira Kelly are with us. Uh, just two stories from the papers to finish up, if we can. A story on the Sunday Times, which is something that has been bugging the daylights out of me, Sheila, for the last couple of weeks. We know what happened after Brexit. We know the euro has risen in value against sterling. 
yet that has not come through in the British multiples which we all shop in the Debenhams the Next the Mother Cares all of these firms who operate over here and we all peel back the little sticker to see what the equivalent British price Mm -hmm. is and it would appear from what the Sunday Times has been writing today Valerie Flynn has the story on page 5 that prices have not come down No they haven't come down and then if you look further into the article we kind of see why or we see some sort of justification in relation to that that in a lot of cases the stock is purchased months ago it's it's, uh, you know the rotation hasn't been changed or whatever a new season has to come in and the prices have to be adjusted accordingly I think one of the companies say that they still have the same overheads in Ireland that they had po- pre-Brexit and all of that. that they all have they all have those justifications I mean this is a long-standing issue this isn't just Brexit you know Brexit just throws another thing into the mix it's a regular source of annoyance for shoppers So am I, am I the only um, one who does that by the way that peels off the day I think everybody does that yeah. I think that you are a troubled person on many fronts <laughs> including getting so worked up about this because there is much less to this than meets the eye if you actually go through the story it's a kind of a nicely presented nah (laughs) (laughs) I get angry it happens on a regular basis but the one the other story which is another meh on on a different level the Great British Bake Off and we realised when I was going to talk about this later on none of us watch it no, no Bake Off fans here. No. Yeah. We thought that was what quite does that funny. say about us? More than <laughs> or does, Bake Off. Does that not mean, are we not in plugged into the zeitgeist? I, we did I, discover though during the outbreak, Jonathan, the only person in the room who bakes is you, which I think is quite interesting <laughs> and, and maybe we'll, we'll challenge some of the, the preconditioned ideas that people have about this panel perhaps with the three women and yourself. <laughs> I'm the token male here. You are. You this are. week, it's good, it's good to be in that particular context. I think it's very encouraging that the three people on your panel, we leave you out again, um, do not watch this no. because in my mind the last 10 years have been a dire succession of cupcakes. I'm just so done with the cupcake syndrome. Don't want to know a cupcake or anything to do with it. Cupcakes with soggy bottoms. Well, indeed. And and double entendres. No headline writer has been able to walk away from the soggy bottoms this week. Would you leave them alone? It turns out the sexual innuendos in in baking are are just rampant. And and who would have ever thunk it? Yes. Well, it was a skill that they've managed to find. (laughs) Well, anyway, the reason why it's in the papers today is because Mel and Sue, who are the two presenters, and Mary Berry, who's one of the judges, uh, they're staying with the BBC and there's to be a rival which presumably none of us are going to watch either. <laughs> what can I say? I admire Mary Berry more so than Mel and Sue you know I like fair juice to them but Mary Berry certainly did. She seems to be at the heart of that show and she basically gave the two fingers to Channel 4. I kind of like her style. Absolutely. Bled right for her. Kira Kelly um, next week you Soggy Bottoms may very well come up on your new programme. Tell us all about it. Yes next week Jonathan I am your warm up act uh, <laughs> alive and kicking with Kira Kelly kicks off next uh, Sunday morning from 9 to 10 in the old Clef Fitzpatrick slot on News Talk. So uh, I'll be seeing you here and doing a little handover with you I think every Sunday from now on you'll be sick of me. I'd got, well look as I said it's great because I get to see the doctor every Sunday morning <laughs> I can store up all of my ailments during yes, the I week. Yes I do love that when people do that that's my very favourite thing in the workplace. <laughs> Thanks Jonathan. Dr Kira Kelly uh, of News Talk fame and the Sunday Independent today a very enjoyable article. Terry Prone, Sheila Riley. thank you all very much for joining us.